Welcome to Embers and Wind. Are you feeling a calling to serve? What if answering this calling unleashes from deep within you leadership potential? I'm your podcast host, Keith Weedman. Blended three decades experience with knowledge from multiple disciplines to unleash hidden potential in others. In this weekly podcast, my distinguished guests and I will share what fuels us and how we serve. You will feel a gentle wind on the embers of service that glow within you. You will receive kindling for your capabilities and knowledge to build skills. You can utilize this gentle wind to ignite the kindling. You will be guided to do this for people you lead and serve. You can apply what you learn with people you love. Get ready to feel the gentle wind. Today's guest is the founder of Forever Homes for Foster Kids, a not-for-profit organization. He's a leading international authority on immigration issues and foster families. A proud Navy veteran, he's been featured on CNN International, Univision, AP News, ABC TV, Costco Connections, and the Washington Post. He's an international speaker and was honored as a California hero. For nearly 30 years, his not-for-profit has worked with government agencies across the country to find families for immigrant and foster children to create a permanent home. The title of this episode is Saving Foster Kids with Family Finding. Please join me in welcoming Richard Villasana to Embers in the Wind. Welcome, Richard. Thank you for having me. What would be useful for us to know about your childhood? Well, I am the oldest of nine. You know, that's a pretty large family. And, you know, growing up, we were very lucky. We're middle class towards the end. I guess you'd say we were well off than that um, as my father's career and his businesses grew. So we were very lucky in that respect. So I can't say there was anything particularly uh, outstanding about it, but uh, I had wonderful parents, wonderful childhood. Uh, I couldn't have asked for, you know, better parents than the ones I had. Where did you, your empathy for Latino children come from? Well, my empathy for uh, Latino children in foster care came from uh, the fact that they are underserved in the foster care industry. And I have a particular draw to them because of my background, which involves doing international business in Latin America and also uh, being Latino myself. And the fact that these children have special challenges in the foster care system and that um, the foster care system really is not prepared to deal with these children. And so because of that lack of resources and education, I feel these children are being uh, underserved. So what are some of the special challenges that these children have? Well, for one is their language. Many children, even if they have grown up in uh, the U.S. and they have a U.S. parent, which the children go into foster care. This is a misconception by many in the public that when we talk about Latino children in foster care, that that means they came from some other country other than the U.S. And that's not true. The children that we have in foster care by the vast majority are U.S. born with a U.S. parent, maybe even two U.S. parents. So they are, you know, U.S. citizens, but they would have grown up in a bilingual household because of other relatives. 
Spanish may be their first language or it could be English, but either way, there's a culture that goes along with being Latino. And what happens with a lot of these children is when they come into the foster care system, unfortunately, a lot of Latinos are not part of the foster care system. What I mean by that is they are not coming in in droves to become foster parents and adoptive parents. And there are cultural reasons why that is. But the bottom line is that these children come in and they really don't have a lot of people who are like them, who understand their culture and their language, who are there to be able to have these children be in their homes. So how did you become the executive director of Forever Homes for Foster Kids? Well, that was a journey that started back in uh, 1993. So I'm telling a little bit of my age. Of course, I started it when I was 12. But anyway, I started it at the same time I started my international marketing business. I found that I had a knack for locating people. I used that knack when I was uh, dealing with government officials uh, in Mexico. And over time, that expertise got shared with other people, and they started asking me to find relatives. And so I have been doing this research to locate people in Latin America for almost three decades. And in the course of doing that and knowing about the challenges that these Latino children faced, the biggest challenge being that when a child comes into the foster care system, agencies are supposed to jump into action and go locate their relatives. And they do this. The challenge for these caseworkers is that if they don't speak Spanish, read the language, understand it, then they're at a disadvantage right there. Couple that to the fact that they have to do this research now internationally, which sets a whole different level. One of the things I've taught businesses is that what you do domestically doesn't mean that's what you do internationally. It's a whole different skill set. And so the caseworkers, no matter how caring they are and how dedicated they are to helping a child, if they lack the resources and the training, they simply are not going to be successful in locating a relative. And so I took that skill that I had and I just transferred it over to these helping these Latino children and helping the agencies who want to help those children to find a parent, could be an absent parent because of a divorce or find relatives who are still living outside the U.S. in Latin America. Now, I know you pretty well, Richard. I know you have a soft heart. Tell us about your caring compassion for children. Well, I guess I'd say I'm usually a little humble about that, but I will share. You know, the thing that gets me up in the morning is knowing that whatever I'm doing today can impact a child and change their life forever. What a lot of people, I'd love them to understand about foster children, these are children who have been taken away from their parents. Now, they may have been removed from their parents for very good reasons because of some form of abuse or some serious neglect. But however these children were taken away from their parents, they were still ripped apart as far as the child is concerned from the people they know and that they love. Now they're in another place around strangers. If you're Latino, you're around a different culture and people who don't speak your language and don't understand you. So there's that added trauma that goes on top of that. And if I can help find one relative that will get that child out of the foster care system and into a permanent home, that's my mission in life. I can die happy doing that. Someone asked me the other day, you know, how would I want to, you know, my life to end? I said, I would be happy 
don't want to talk about death, but dying on my keyboard, knowing I was still working away, trying to reunite another child. I could do that. You know, they ask, what would you do for free in your life? I am working my dream job by helping finding their relatives who will step up and will take in that child and get them out of the foster care system and get them into a loving home. I bet you have a story you can share about a child you've helped reunite with a relative. Absolutely. Uh, I'd like to talk about Veronica. She was 15 years old, doing what normal teenagers do, going to school, thinking about senior year, boys. The next thing you know, her life changes. Her father gets into prison and she gets sent into foster care. Now, as I mentioned before, the foster care agency jumped into action to go find relatives who might be able to take Veronica in. Unfortunately, the only relatives they could find on her father's side, and he had died three years before. So she had no one on her father's side that the agency could find to come and to take Veronica out of the foster care system. Now, at 15 years old, the probability that Veronica would get adopted by someone is almost none. It's less than 1% at 15 years old. So she's guaranteed to stay in the system until 18. At 18 years old in her state, she would age out. What that means is on her 18th birthday, she is no longer living in the foster home. She is on the street. She has her clothes, maybe in a garbage bag. She may or may not have any money. And now she has to fend for herself. She may not have finished college. The probability is that she would become homeless immediately. She could end up turning to crime to get money to support herself and to feed herself. She could turn to prostitution. She could end up in prison in the next two years, or she could become a victim of sex trafficking. And the numbers tell us that some children become sex trafficking victims within six hours from the time that they are dropped off. It is a shocking number, especially for a girl. And so that was her future. The only other way she would be saved is if someone could find her relatives on her mother's side of the family. And her mother had left and gone back to Mexico to stay with her relatives there. So the agency came to my nonprofit and asked us to help. Three weeks later, we found her mother. We found her grandmother. We found a couple of aunts. And in doing that, they told the caseworker, you know, Veronica has two aunts living in Los Angeles. Guess where Veronica is living now? That's right. Veronica is now over in Los Angeles. She's back in school. She's back on track, and she's with loving, caring relatives. That's what family finding does. I love that story, Richard. Thank you for sharing that. Now, you have an unusual knack. You're the only person I know who works for a not-for-profit organization who also has selling skills. How does your selling skills help you in your work through Forever Homeless Foster Kids? Oh, uh, my professional skills, especially my skill uh, selling skills, are critical to our success and for our ability to grow quickly. We're not a huge charity uh, by uh, any uh, nominal means, but we are able to do and produce with very little. And we're very successful at that because specifically our selling skills. The selling skills come into play as we structure our information as we share that information with government officials in other countries. We have to win them over. These are people who are doing their job. They're working for a municipality. They're working for the state. 
and they're getting a phone call from the United States and someone saying, I want you to help us find a relative. That's quite a sales job to get them to add this extra work on top of everything else that they're doing and to help us. And that's what we have done throughout Latin America for years. We've gotten government officials to work with us and to do it happily and very quickly so that we can get these children out of foster care by locating their relatives. So having the selling skills and knowing how to structure how we talk to these people, having it sharpen our professionalism as we talk to these people has been critical. What comes to my mind is something you and I learned from Eric Lawful, that selling is service. Selling is influencing people. And I believe you are very influential when it comes to influencing people in a positive direction, one that's helpful, helpful to the children, helpful to families, and helpful to everyone who lives in the United States. Thank you for doing that. You're welcome. So do you have a story you can, a story you can share about someone you've helped through selling? Well, I would say we've helped all the children we're helping have been benefited from our selling skills. So again, for instance, when we are pitching to have people donate, most nonprofits run on donations. Ours especially runs on individual donations. So the selling skill, part of that structure your language be, how's it going to resonate with the people who are reading it? It has to have empathy behind it and has to get the attention of your audience. And if you don't do that, then you're not going to succeed. And people who are in business, hopefully the ones who are successful, they know this already. They have crafted their message, their advertising, the way that they receive people. All of that is part of selling. Because if you walk into the door of a business and someone isn't greeting you and someone isn't talking to you in a manner as they're telling you about their product that is open and inviting. So it doesn't matter what they're selling, but if you don't like the people that you're dealing with and you don't like the way that they're communicating with you, people are going to go out the door. And it's the same thing happens with charities, especially with charities, because again, we are so reliant on donations. So we have to be able to attract people with our stories, with our information. And so that whole thinking and strategy is what drives our particular charity. And it's something that really many charities could benefit from. Well, you won me over, Richard. So how do you utilize social media to support forever homes for foster children? Oh, we love Facebook. And I'm going to just say whatever thoughts people have about that platform. All I can say is from a charitable standpoint, it has been amazing. They started allowing donations three years ago, and that has completely transformed our charity where people can go in, they can donate every day on a post that we put up. They can mark fundraisers that we're running or that other people are running. They have made it so easy for people to give. And here's something I'd like to share. We had a post that has reached over a quarter of a million people. If everyone had given $1 who liked that post, that's more than 250,000 people liked that post. If they had given $1, we would have had our budget set for the next two years. That's how easy it is for people to participate. And that's why I love social media. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, but Facebook is the one that is the driver as far as it goes for our donations. 
Richard, what significant challenges do not-for-profit professionals need to overcome to succeed? The biggest challenge that nonprofits have is getting away from the idea of scarcity. You know, in business, we're told to think about prosperity and think about growth. You can't run a business successfully and think, I'm going to be out of business next week. You have that mentality, you will be out of business next week. Entrepreneurs are challenged every day, every week to think of how can we work with the least amount of money to make the most amount of money? But that's not a mentality that most charities have. And charities also lack, in general, the idea of collaboration. That is something that, again, in business, if someone is looking to go after a particular client, there are businesses who will go to their competitor and say, look, let's join forces and let's get this customer together. Well, that would never cross the mind of most nonprofits. They just, for whatever reason, don't have that particular mindset of working together, of sharing information openly. What I know can help you. And that goes back to that idea of scarcity, the idea that there's only money. And there are people who write books about this, that it's limited out there. Well, I don't buy that. And I have seen how our donations have grown and our influence has grown because we're thinking, how can we be prosperous? Not how we can hoard our money and keep it. And we know what happens when people hoard and keep it with that kind of mentality. They lose it. What comes to my mind as I listen to you talk is the law of attraction. I think you're speaking to that. Absolutely. You have to want to attract good things to you. And that's what you focus on. We've heard it time and again. What you focus on is what will grow. And you have to focus on prosperity. You have to focus on bringing in more, doing better, doing it quicker, faster. Those are all aspects that we attribute to businesses. But the nonprofit is simply doing good works, but it still needs to run like a business and have those metrics in place so that they can succeed and stay in business. Richard, how has serving as the executive director of Forever Homes for Foster Cares changed you? Well, it certainly has made me a better leader. You can't run a nonprofit without picking up those skills and increasing your executive skills, ability to manage people, being able to delegate, if you have to grow, it has to grow beyond one person. So Forever Homes for Foster Kids is vastly more than just me. I may be the driver of this at this time, but I'm also looking for people to come in and succeed me and to be able to take this so that it is continuing to go on way past where I'm able to function and to be an executive of this nonprofit. And that's also part of the executive mindset, looking ahead and seeing how can I build the longevity of this organization? And so we're constantly looking at how we can improve our operation and give more bang for the buck to our donors. And ultimately, though, how we can do a better job so we get more children out of the foster care system and into forever homes. That's the bottom line. Thank you for sharing that, Richard. Now, you've already shown us, shared a story about Veronica, but I'll bet you have another story that keeps you in forever homes for foster kids. Definitely do. My second favorite story, there were three girls, four, eight, and 10, and they were in the foster care system. And at that age, they're too young to really be able to share information about their relatives 
again, there are some misconceptions that the public may have when they think about foster kids and wondering, how come you can't get these kids to an aunt or an uncle? Well, part of the problem is if the child is too young, they don't know everyone. They may know that they had Auntie Maddie or that they had, you know, Uncle John, but they don't know where Uncle John lived and they don't know the phone number for Uncle John. And there may be other relatives living in other parts of the country that they've never heard about, never met. This came home to me when I was at a funeral for my uncle. And my brothers and sisters were asking me, who's that? Well, that's your cousin. Well, who's that? Well, that's your uncle. I knew these people because I'd spent time with them. But I saw very clearly how my brothers and sisters didn't know any of these relatives. And the same thing was true for these three little girls. They were too young to be able to give information to the caseworkers who were trying desperately to find relatives so they could place these girls with them. As it happened, they knew about an uncle in Mexico. So again, they came to our nonprofit. We found the uncle in a matter of weeks. So the caseworker is on the phone. It's a Saturday. She's got an interpreter and she's calling down to Mexico. And she gets the uncle on the phone and she's talking to the uncle. And after a few minutes, she says, by the way, we have heard that there are two aunts living in Chicago, but we don't know anything more about them. Would you happen to know anything about these ants and how we could reach them? And the uncle says, wait a minute. And about 45 seconds later, a woman picks up the phone and says, yes, how can I help you? And the caseworker tells the story again about looking for these two ants. And a woman says, well, I'm one of the ants. What had happened is that two ants were, had flown to Mexico to visit with the family. And at that particular moment, both ants had been sitting in the dining area having coffee with the family when that phone call came in. Oh, wow. Of course, the caseworker, she, yeah, she is going crazy. She's like, 17 years. I've never had anything happen like this in my life. Guess where the three girls went? The ants, of course, took the girls in, adopted the girls. They're doing very well now. But that's how family finding works. And interestingly, to do this work internationally, 80% of the time, the relatives in Mexico or Brazil or Argentina will tell us and tell the caseworkers where they can find relatives who are already living in the U.S. And we have found relatives that nobody knew existed in the U.S. We found relatives like they knew about them, but they didn't know how to find them. So how did your effectiveness working with these foster families lead to you working with foster families from multiple countries. You began with Mexico, correct? Right. I did start with Mexico simply because it was a good gateway. Years ago, 95% of all the cases in the U.S. really dealt with Mexico. And so we did some work in Central America over the years and South America, but Principally, we were spending all of our time with Mexico. Now, that has shifted over the last four or five years, where now we are spending almost all of our time working with families in Central America and South America, because those are the children who are ending up coming into the U.S., going through the federal system and being released to a sponsor. It's a fancy name for usually a relative, could be the mother could be an uncle or an aunt. You got to keep in mind, these are people coming up from very poor 
countries economically. They're going with family members, but that doesn't mean those family members are rich. Most likely they are lower income. And with that comes you know, the probability that these children may be separated from their families because of neglect or abuse, the things that impact families. Unfortunately, low-income families suffer from these things. So, you know, the stress of working two jobs, having, you know, that extra child that they really feel they can't afford, whatever pressures the parents have where they snap, and that leads to the child being removed. And so we are now seeing those children coming into the foster care system, many of them, and the states are not prepared for that. And so we are finding that we are being asked to do a lot more work in Central and South America. Now, I know that you're also involved in helping the federal government with solve the problem caused by U recent U.S. policy separating children from their families at the Mexican border. What can you share about that? Yes, we are uh, working ultimately to help the federal government in reuniting these parents who were separated, who were sent back to their countries to be reunited with their children who are in the U.S. And it's been a lot of work. The information that we had to work with was not um, exceptional. Uh, it's taken a lot of our cultural training. Also, we have some wonderful researchers who understand the countries and understand the uh, terrain and how local government works. And because of that, we're able to approach this in a much different fashion than, let's say, someone who's uh, trained as a social worker, who's not really trained in research, or even attorneys who, again, they're attorneys, but they're not trained in research of this nature where we are. And so it's very fulfilling to know that we're able to step in and to help in a terrible situation and to be able to be reuniting families who've been separated for years now and to bring them together. So what can you tell us about the book you're writing? So the book I'm writing does talk about the work that we're doing and shares stories about families who have been separated and we'll continue to uh, lead into where we are now and what are some of the challenges that we'll be facing uh, the country as these children are moving through the federal system and coming into society. What special challenges do these children struggle with? Goes back to culture and language again. It is so hard at times to get across to someone how challenging this could be. The example I want to share is everyone's familiar with Marvel. We've seen all the movies, you know, read the comics. Well, one of the things, meetings I attended here in San Diego, we're lucky to have Comic-Con. So I attended a conference that talked about how comics were changing when it came to Native Americans. And they were talking about how in the old days, they would always show someone with a spear and a wooden loincloth. And they said, this is not today's Native American. And they were talking about how they had writers who were Native American, who were, you know, Cherokee and other, from other tribes who were drawing and writing the storyline and putting their cultural influence onto these. And there was a woman there who was nationally recognized. I wish I could tell you her name, but in the Native American circle, she is 
extremely regarded as a speaker and as an advocate nationally and internationally for Native Americans. And I asked her, I said, what is the importance of having these cartoons and having these comics drawn by Native Americans with their voice? And she said, the children who read them and see them, they feel seen, they feel heard. And we've heard this before with other things, sees a movie or a TV show, and that child says, that's me. And they see their possibilities. They see what they could be. They could be president. They could be a leader of business. They could be in any area. They could be in technology. If they're a woman and they understand that I can be this person, I don't have to be held back because somebody says women shouldn't be in technology. I can be that person. And that is what this is all about. That is the one thing we're trying to do is to bring this cultural awareness. And that's what's lacking in the foster care system is having people who have that knowledge, who can share that knowledge, who can let the child know that you are seen. We understand who you are. And it's not happening. And it's not the fault of the caseworkers. They are not getting the training. Can I share one thing with you that will maybe really clarify this? Sure. When I was in Desert Storm, I was sent to Italy. And it amazed me how we got to Italy. And the next day we got there, we were all in a, a culture class, essentially. It was a crash course for two days, talking to us about where we were, the people, the island we were on, the Italian culture the do's and don'ts, the things we should do to keep ourselves safe, the things we should do so that we would not upset the Italians who were graciously, you know, our partners there because we were on an island where we were sharing it with the Italians. They were our partners and they wanted us to understand this. They wanted us to be good representatives of the United States while we were over there. Now, that was two days worth of training. That's how important it was to the military that they give us this training, and yet caseworkers don't get this. They don't have anywhere near this kind of training. And this was very fast. We learned, of course, over the our time there, we had even more indoctrination into the culture. But that was what they did immediately before we did anything else. And yet that's not the case when it comes to caseworkers. They don't get this kind of training. And so they lack that ability to empathize and to share, and the children suffer. So there's a listener right now who resonates with your message. How can they stay connected with you, Richard? I'd say the best way is on our Facebook page. They can put in Forever Homes for Foster Kids and visit us on Facebook. We talk about many topics around foster care. Some of those are not happy topics, but they're necessary. It's necessary to talk about the things that can be improved. It's also very important to have hope and to show that the foster care system does work. And yes, there may be a person out there who has had a bad experience with foster care. That's their experience. And I will take nothing away from that. On the other hand, that does not mean that that is foster care across the country. There are some areas of the country where foster care is done very well. And there's some other areas of the country where it needs serious help. But no matter what, the bottom line is we are talking about children. And that has to be the focus for people who want to engage with us. They can go to our foster Facebook page. They can do it there. They can also go to our website, 
foreverhomesforfosterkids.org slash donation, and they can donate directly. Either way, we will get the funds without any extra charge or percentage taken out, and they can help us that way because the donors are who drive our ability to help these children. They are the ones that we are so thankful for, for giving of their time and their generosity to help these children. So the, the best way that people can support you and support Forever Home for Foster Kids is by making a donation, true? Absolutely. And do you have a benevolent call to action for those who joined this conversation to be able to take what they learned in this conversation and apply it? Yes, a, a good call to action would be if they went to our Facebook page and shared a post. Educating the public about foster children is so critical. They are hidden. No one really hears about them unless something really disastrous happens. And yet there are thousands of children right now who are going to go through the holidays with no one. And I want to, I keep talking about children, but think of the one child. There is a little girl right now, six years old, who is not going to get anything for the holidays. And it's not always about gifts, but they're not going to be in a foster home. They're not going to get a hug. They're not going to get a hot meal. They're not going to get that personal touch. They're not going to feel the season. It's just going to be another time of the year for them because they are alone in an institution or they are not enough foster parents. So they are sleeping on the floor of an office. That's the person we think about that little girl and giving that girl back a forever home, a family, someone who will hug them and ask them how their day was, maybe give them a cookie, someone who will care about that little girl or that little boy and will love them. That's what this is all about. And so if they could share a post, do a fundraiser, do a donation, any of those, all of it goes to help that one child. It, we make a difference one child at a time. Thank you so much, Richard, for being a guest on Embers and Wind. And thank you so much for joining this conversation. We look forward to seeing you next week. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of Embers and Wind. If you enjoyed today, please come back next week. Please also share this episode with a friend. If you've not already subscribed to Embers and Wind, rated this podcast, and written a review, please do this now. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, you can reach me directly at embersandwind.net. Thank you again for joining us.